one of Israel's living and best writers is a man named, a man named Meir Shalev. Now, I added the words living because just a few months back, Amos Oz passed away, leaving only but a few of the old guard riders surviving. Shalev is amongst the youngest of them, born just after the War of Independence but completing his army service before the Yom Kippur War. Shalev was brought into an Israel that was all at once unsure and aspirational, frightened, besieged, and implacable. Israel, during his time growing up, was a fearful but undeterrable in willing itself to achieve what it wished for itself. Meir Shalev is known for beautiful Hebrew prose and a sharp biting wit. And this past week in Israel, I had the good fortune to hear him speak. And he remarked how Israel, how Hebrew, excuse me, is such a profoundly economical language. I've mentioned this myself, it is one of the few where it has but a few words, and every word can mean three, four, or even five different things. And as he was speaking, it reminded me of a lesson that I had learned years back myself. I had read, and I don't remember where, but the Inuit have more than 20 different words for snow and ice. Because, you know, when you live with something all the time, you develop a keen sense of the subtle differences, that there isn't something. And we know, boy do we know, the varieties of snow and ice, how they can be. I mean, if you're from the Sahara and you see snow, all you see are white flakes. But we know that there is wet snow and there is fluffy snow. We know that there is snow that has big flakes and there's snow that has small flakes. And if you look really closely, there's snow that is cotton ball-like. And there is snow that almost looks like dust. And you are also, as I am, familiar with the differences in ice. There is a look of ice that has been frozen for a very long time. And there is ice that hasn't been exposed to temperature for too long. It's freshly frozen ice. Okay, that's enough with ice and snow. It's time for summer. But Shalev goes on to say that in Hebrew, a language that has a shockingly small number of words, seven to 8,000 in Biblical Hebrew, a quarter of a million in modern Hebrew compared to a million in English alone. Shalev goes on to say that in Hebrew there is a surprisingly large number of words for stupidity, which actually was his entree into a critical assessment of Israeli politics today. It's also going to be mine. People complain I don't talk about politics enough. You're probably going to regret it after the sermon. So I want to talk about Israel's politics in the moment, which could also mean that I might be entirely wrong a week from now. But I think that these trends have been baking in for a long time. And perhaps by seeing where we are, we can just get a glimpse of where we might be going. Now to the uninitiated, Israel like operates in a parliamentary system like Canada. And it uses a percentage threshold that determines who wins or loses seats in the Knesset. For example, if the threshold is 3% and you win 30% of the vote, you'll be entitled to 30% of the 120 seats in the Knesset. You're going to be tested on this at the end of the service. If your party scores less than 3% of the total vote, you will not be awarded a seat at all. For the past 35 years, Israel's politics have been governed 
by what political science, scientists call fragmentation, where you have a large number of small parties, each with a niche agenda, parties for ecology, peace, religion, secular issues, cannabis, parties who seldom end up ever fulfilling their broad mandates and end up frustrating the larger political purpose of trying to govern an entire country. But Israel is a country of Jews, and so there are lots of opinions. What's the old joke? In the 1950s, President Eisenhower was meeting with Israel's Prime Minister, David Ben-Gurion, and Eisenhower complained to Ben-Gurion, do you know how difficult it is to be a president of a country of 125 million people? And Ben-Gurion says to him, Mr. President, do you have any idea what it's like being a prime minister to a country of three million prime ministers? In the past elections, the party with the most seats was charged by the president of Israel to form a government, which meant attempting to form a working coalition with smaller parties that they have some ideological outlook with. But this arrangement usually ends up relegating the role of the prime minister of being a horse trader, coaxing parties into joining the government with promises of government ministries, budgetary goodies, and usually both. Netanyahu, the prime minister, was a master at this process. Bibi Netanyahu was able to form coalitions where others had failed. But last month, it all came to a crashing end. Bibi Netanyahu could not form a coalition because one of his former partners drew a line on the sand on the issue of ultra-Orthodox Army service and draft deferments. No more, this former coalition partner said, unless the current draft law was going to be enforced as it is. So the Knesset was dissolved. And now elections are slated for the second time in less than six months. But to understand Israel and Israeli politics, you have to abandon what you thought was true even 15 years ago. 15 years ago. Which is something that Western media people have not done. Watch CNN. But to be fair, it's something that North American Jews haven't done either. You see, in Israel today, the political divide is not between the left and the right, like it is, for example, in Canada or the United States or in Europe. The, the political left in Israel died off after the Second Intifada in 2003. Today there is the right and what we'll call the center. And that's where Israel's political and in ways moral life is being fought over. Bibi Netanyahu's Likud party is center-right. The settler parties who he formed coalitions, coalitions with, they're hard right. The ultra-Orthodox parties are neither left nor are they right. They join whatever government that will deliver them the best package of budget and ministries. For the past 30 years, the ultra-Orthodox parties have found that with the right wing of the Israeli political spectrum. But don't forget that for the first 40 years of Israeli history, they always sided with the atheist labor socialists. The other major party, Kachol Levan, blue and white, is also center-right. center, center right. And the difference in Israeli politics today is in between those who see the current situation in the territories as tolerable, sustainable, perhaps even acceptable, and between those who don't. 
large swaths of people don't believe they should be patrolling and controlling those territories. And there is a very large swath of Israelis who understand that the status quo is broken, but they're not sure what the way out is. It is not what some on the hard right call a one-state solution. And it is not what others think about unilateral withdrawals. And the large middle, more than 60% of the voting country in Israel, recognize that there is a moral crisis underway and that the very future of the state is at stake. In the center, they understand, as much as it is a crisis of asking 18-year-olds to patrol and police in areas that are ripe with existential problems, the bigger question for them is how the conflict is robbing the country of its greater call and its larger opportunity. This conflict sucks the air from problems that this exceptional and remarkable country has been contending with for years. Problems of social and economic balance between the north and the south, the areas outside the center of the country, Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. Problems of infrastructure, poor public transport, and Israel's crippling traffic issues. If you have tried to drive in Tel Aviv between 3 and 6 o'clock, you better pray and hold your breath. The problem of a narrow ultra-Orthodox monopoly over the religious life of all the Jews in the country, to name only a few. The long-serving Netanyahu has been telling Israelis, don't worry, I have it under control. And the country in the last election is starting to say, we're not so sure anymore, Bibi. Now you might have been thinking a good question. Why didn't the two large center parties form a unity government between themselves? They would have had a comfortable 70-seat majority in the Knesset and would govern from the political center where so many of Israelis emotionally and intellectually live. But the undertow to everything that I'm saying to you this morning are Bibi Netanyahu's very serious legal issues and his need to stay in power to try to avoid prosecution. He's been formally accused by the state's attorney general, the one that he appointed, of accepting bribes, exploiting his position for favor, and manipulating the, the media and the public trust. Politicians are nothing if not bloodhounds, my friends. And other Israeli politicians are smelling that his day of reckoning and their opportunity is near. Reports following his failure to create a coalition government painted scenes of panic. Netanyahu was desperate to form a government and entertain a wide and bizarre number of parties as partners, apparently even having a meeting with the head of the left-wing Labour Party, Avi Gabai. It was videotaped, increasingly promising him a wider range of offers in exchange that the newly installed coalition would, would support what is called the French law, which legislation that would defer any criminal prosecution of the Prime Minister until after he has left government. Apparently, that is in the books in France. A prime minister can be accused of non-capital offenses and would enjoy deferment and freedom from a trial until only they are after out of office. So are you confused? Good. I'm sure you're happy you're not voting in the Israeli elections on September the 17th. Which brings me back to our old friend, Mayor Shalev. That night that I heard him speak was an exceptionally beautiful evening. 
He was invited to speak at the, at the doctoral invocation at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. The sun was setting. The cypress trees were whispering and swaying in the breeze. To my east were the mountains of Hartzion, Mount Zion. To my south was the Midbar Yehuda, the Judean desert. It was a profoundly preternatural moment that invites the kind of anxiety and thought that gives a place meaning. And standing in all of this was our friend Shalev who asked, who do you vote for? But his thought revealed a deeper truth. Perhaps the question isn't who to vote for. Perhaps the question is, not only for Israelis, but for Canadians, is what to vote for. And the answer, Shalev reminds us, is already known. The Hebrew word for voting is bachar. The Hebrew word for choosing is bachar. It's the same word. In the Torah we are told, And you should choose life. We who have become so conditioned to the cults of personality and media fame are drawn to supporting people who are measured to have or have not favorabilities. Years back, one political strategist remarked that Ronald Reagan's hair was worth six points in polling. But perhaps we've come to a moment. And unquestionably, it is landing at the feet of our Israeli brothers and sisters. Perhaps we have come to a moment where we are being asked not who we want to be our leaders, but what do we believe in? What are we prepared to accept in our society? What do we want from our leaders? What do we want from ourselves and our children? What kind of life do we want? What are we? And I think in some ways that's been answered by Israel's first prime minister in the founding document, in the Declaration of Israeli Independence. It said so many years ago, that the state of Israel would be open to Jewish immigration and for the ingathering of the exiles. That the state would foster the development of the country for the benefit of all of its inhabitants. And, And that this country would be based on freedom and justice and peace as dreamt by the prophets of the people of Israel. I don't know any other country that has that line in it. Israelis are keenly aware, unlike citizens of many other countries, that their country exists not only for their citizens, but for a greater purpose. And in the midst of failure and debate and election, I came back to Toronto to say that hope is alive and it is well. Shabbat Shalom.